Lord, we praise you for these songs of hope and grace. We praise you for calling us together as your people today around your word in this way. And we pray now that the Spirit of God would teach us and encourage us, sanctify us as we consider your truth. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Money clarifies reality. For instance, money proves what we can and cannot do in this world, what is possible for us and what is mere fantasy. I'm shopping for airline tickets in order to minister alongside the Day family in India here in a few weeks, and Beth has been online looking for airline tickets, and she found one. $15,000. Comes with limousine service, five-star meals all the way along, and an airplane seat that functions like a hotel room. Money clarifies I'm no VIP. Apparently, I'm 10% of a VIP on that airplane. But money clarifies reality in other ways as well. How we steward our wealth reveals who we really are. Money reveals that we are who we think we are. But it reveals more that we are who we sometimes don't think we are. It clarifies what we actually love. It clarifies what we genuinely value. It reveals the level of generosity, greed, fear, folly, faith that fills our hearts. Money just continues to clarify. It also clarifies the truth about our dedication to the advance of Christ's cause in this waking world. We can talk all day about our love for Christ's church We can trumpet our passion to see the gospel advance among the nations, but it's our giving that really tests the reality of our desire to fuel the gospel's spread and to see Christ's church flourish. Now certainly there are our words, and there are other things that we can do to support, such as pray. But if we put nothing of our resources toward the spread of the gospel, do we really intend for it to go anywhere? Really? And just bearing down a little bit further upon that point, the advance of Christ's mission requires that we supply the livelihoods of qualified pastor, teachers, and frontline evangelists. And we can pretend that away, or we can say it's not good to talk about that in polite company or something like that, but the reality is that's what we have to do. Or it's all just going to be words. We've seen three young men return from overseas teaching the Word of God to church leaders in various parts of the world. They did not go free of charge. They did not fly 
on an airline that charged $15,000 for their seat either, I'm sure, right? But someone has to supply for us. Money clarifies us. And ultimately, of course, it's not money that makes this clear. It's the New Testament that makes this clear. And that's what's far more important to us. And the New Testament really builds on the preparatory biblical precedent that we find under the Old Covenant, which brings us back now to Numbers chapter 18 and the reason for the comments that I've made. For several weeks, we've considered the necessity of God's chosen priesthood. We must have His priest in the sanctification of our lives. In chapter 16, verse 1 through 18, verse 7, we see God's chosen priest standing between God and His people, bearing the responsibility to substitute their lies between the just anger of God and the people who want to live in His presence. When the Israelites finally got the point, what did they say? They get the point about the reality of their sin, God's holiness and their need for sanctification. And what happens when they get the point? Chapter 17 and verse 12, and the people of Israel said to Moses, behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? They saw the wrath of God in its justice. They saw their sin and they said, we need a good priest. Well, they didn't even know to ask that because they have been rebelling against the true priest. But God knew they needed a good priest. And Aaron and his sons are interposed. God responds in chapter 18 and verse 1. Remember the connection we drew last week. So the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected to the sanctuary. You and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. That is, you will bear the sinful condition, the risky condition of the Israelites, you will take their place and substitute yourself in the tabernacle area to protect the holiness of God and to protect them from the judgment they deserve. That's the role of a priest. And that's my calling upon your life, God now makes clear. So the picture that we're to have here is the tribe of Levi is a gift of God to Israel to mediate between God and sinners. They are to atone for sin through the sacrificial system. They are to follow the prescribed rituals that God gives to allow sinners to come near His presence. And we know, of course, that all of this is fulfilled in our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate priest, the the final sacrifice, the one who stands between us and God and bears our sin. All of this is preparing us for that. It's showing us the channel we are to take as it points us systematically to Jesus Christ. Anybody can show up on earth one day and say, I'm God. I've got you covered. I'm going to die and your sins are forgiven. There's no way to know that that's true apart from the preparation that points us to Christ as the great high priest, and of course confirmed then by his resurrection. 
He is this great high priest. But when we go back to those preparatory days under the old covenant, don't you rejoice when you read through the book of Leviticus, which we've done as a church, and say, thank God I didn't live then. I mean, this was one complicated system. It involved every aspect of their lives. There was the complicated ritual worship that included animal sacrifices done a certain way, the right parts offered, disposed of the proper way, ritual upon ritual upon ritual with that animal sacrifice. Don't get lulled into sleep to think that's all it was. This ritual of cleanness and uncleanness bore down into every nook and cranny of their lives. A bodily emission made you unclean. Touching a dead body, which they didn't call the funeral home when someone died. They had to touch dead bodies. They had to clean their own dead and handle them. You are now unclean. You give birth, you're unclean. Sexual relations, you're unclean. I'm on and on. And just the bodily functions of life made you unclean, which then meant that you needed to follow ritual to become clean and to go, come back into this system of atonement. God establishes this layer upon layer upon layer of how we can come into the presence of God. I want us to think about one thing here, just from one angle. We can think about it from a lot of angles. But thinking of this complicated system, think about this. It doesn't happen without money. It can't function without the gifts of God's people to the sanctuary. It all falls apart. Money is not the most important thing here. Giving is not the most important thing here. It's the atonement for the sinner. But that whole system rides on God's people giving of their possessions to make the system work, to do what God has called them to do. If the ritual system of worship was a car, the compensation for the priest was the gasoline. Cars going nowhere. The system just sits there with all its rules and regulations unless someone within Israel can be funded to make it happen. That doesn't sound real pretty. It doesn't sound real spiritual. Money clarifies. And this is what we see in the text before us. The priests cannot devote their lives to the service of God's people unless they are supported by God's people. It's that simple. As we look at the text before us, Numbers 18, verse 8 and following, I want to just to note how, it's, how it breaks down very, fairly obviously. But notice verse 8, that the Lord spoke to Aaron. This is a common division marker in the book of Numbers, when God speaks to the leader of the nation, here uniquely to Aaron. Then as we move forward, we come to verse 20. And the Lord said to Aaron. Here's a marker now for a a second segment of God's revelation to his people here. And then as we come to verse 25, and the Lord spoke to Moses. These three dividing points I think are, are, are the, these are the three dividing points of the text that is before us. We're going to work through it fairly quickly here. By the way, I think 
it should break at verse 20. If you have ESV as I do, it breaks at 21. I think 20 would be a, a much clearer argument because of these markers the Lord said. So let's look at these three in turn. And what God says about this ritual system and how it is to be cared for. The first thing that we notice in verses 8 through 19 is God's covenantal compensation of the Aaronic priests. I would just say that's what's going on in these verses. Verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, Behold, I have given you charge of the contributions made to me, all the consecrated things of the people of Israel. I have given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual due, as a grant, a compensation. So the Israelites were required to bring sacrificial animals, offerings of the produce of the land. They were required to bring monetary gifts to the tabernacle in devotion to God. God, in turn, gives these sanctuary contributions as a perpetual grant to the Aaronic priests as compensation for their service. It's not going to happen any other way. These people have to eat. They have to live. And they're not going to do this work unless there's this compensation. So in, per, in perpetuity, God wills the gifts of the worshipers of Israel to the priests who serve the sanctuary. Verse 9. This, these contributions from the people to me in my name, this, verse 9, shall be yours of the most holy things reserved from the fire. Every offering, the sacrifices that they bring, every grain offering of theirs, every sin offering of theirs, and every guilt offering of theirs, which they render to me, shall be most holy to you and to your sons. In a most holy place shall you eat it. Every male may eat it. It is holy to you. Now there's many complicated, involved rituals accompanying these different kinds of sacrifices. Here, suffice it to note that they are set aside as holy for the benefit of the priests and only the priests who were all men. The priests as heads of their homes. The priests as tasked with a heavy, bloody, exhausting, sweaty work of animal sacrifices were to be men, reflecting God's good design and order for his people and for his families. And the meat of these types of sacrifices, which have been the right thigh of the sacrifice, were reserved for the priests as uniquely holy. Thus, they were untouchable even by their families. In this unique sacrifice, it was just the priests. We know their families could eat other ways, but maybe these men had particularly heavy appetites with the work that they were doing every day as they made these sacrifices and did this work and carried the furniture of the tabernacle on journey. But this is limited, and, and it's really not connected to so much male-female, so much uh, Aaronic priest-Levite divisions and the like, but rather to the whole theme of holiness. And so this, these holy gifts were to be eaten only by the priests. Verse 11, in a holy place, that would have been in the sanctuary where no one else was permitted to be. Verse 11, this also is yours. 
So he's going to add now some more contributions from the people that are theirs. Contribution of the gift, all the wave offerings. That is, from what we can tell, the breast, well, it was the breast of the sacrifice, but it was lifted to the Lord in praise, but just referred to that way as wave offerings or heave offerings of the people of Israel. I have, verse 11, I have given them to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. What's changed here? Obviously, now the whole family can eat it. Verse 12, all the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and of the grain, the first fruits of what they give to the Lord, I give to you. So they're going to bring these things to the sanctuary and they'll be yours to eat, your families to eat. The first, verse 13, the first ripe fruits of all that is in their land which they bring to the Lord shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. Notice here that it is the best of the oil. That is, for instance, olive oil. Olive is put into a press and the oil that comes. It's the best of the oil. It's the best of the wine. It's the best of the grain is given to the priest as compensation for their service to God and His people. That's a significant point. So think of it here. That I'm an Israelite. I'm going into this land of abundance. And it grows all kinds of things that didn't grow in Egypt. Wonderful food. And I'm going to give myself to the land and I work every day to exhaustion to see that land produce food. And it does. In the abundance of God's grace to us as His people, there is wheat that we thresh and harvest. There are trees that we plant and we glean the olives off those trees and the grapes and we press them into juices and oils and their fruit into liquid form. And then they're to take the very best tasting portion of all of that work and they're to give it to God. They are not to look at all of that work and all of that produce and that wonderful blessing from the Lord and say, let's see what we have left over. It's, it's just going to the sanctuary. Uh, let's kind of look for something in the middle. God instructs them what you're to do is to find what is best in that and to give that to God. There's an orientation here that is unmistakable. It's a first fruits orientation. It's the best of the produce that we pass on to Him, that we give and worship, that we say, I'm not going to taste that. I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to give that to God. This took a measure of disciplined obedience. It took a measure of humble acknowledgement of God's sovereign ownership of all that they possess. Christian, if you don't have that in your wheelhouse, you got to get it there. There are things in this world that we can have and should not have. There are things that we can enjoy and taste and touch and handle for ourselves that we should leave untouched and tasted and handled. We recognize that there are even good things in the world that become evil things when we use them the wrong way. 
God is teaching Israel through this discipline to say, give to me the best. Of all your hard work and labor, I come first. Does God say that because he needs to eat these things? Does he say that because he wants to make their life miserable? To just dangle the carrot in front of them and never let them taste the best of the produce? No, he's teaching them that I am your greatest treasure. I am your greatest satisfaction. I am your joy and strength. And he disciplines them to understand this. Now there's something, maybe because of our setting here and looking back so far, we might have missed it. Where are they going to get this stuff? There's no olive oil. There's no wine. There's no grain fields that they're raising here. They're out in the desert. God knows he's going to bring them into the promised land. He has promised to bring them there and he's going to get them there. So all of this ritual preparation for the use of these resources, they're not even there yet. But they're going to be. And when you get there, God will bring you to the land. You will inherit the land. You will offer the sacrifices as he has prescribed. Further, verse 14, every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Now he goes on to a different concept, and that's that everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man, of course, you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals, which you can't offer on the altar, you shall redeem as well. And their redemption price, at a month old, you shall redeem them. That is, a a, a firstborn son you shall fix at five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras, and a fair amount of money, about six months day labor wages. So you're not going to truly offer the firstborn children. You're not going to truly offer, well, you can't offer unclean animals, so they have to be redeemed. Money needs to go to the sanctuary to buy them back and give them life. Now we remember all of this reminds the Israelites of the sacrifice of the firstborn, the the judgment of the death of the firstborn in Egypt. On that night, the firstborn male of every Egyptian home, man and animal, was judged in death. And every firstborn of Israel was redeemed. How were they redeemed? They were redeemed by the blood of the sacrificial animal on the doorpost and the lintel of their homes. That atoned for the firstborn. But remember how, as it develops, the Levites, this tribe, stands in for the firstborn. And it's so carefully constructed that there are 273 extra that they had to figure out how to get them there. In other words, the Levites are standing in for all the the firstborn who live. And all of this ritual is to remind Israel of that. To remind Israel, in fact, of why the Levites are serving as they are for your sanctification. These priests stood in the place before. Stood in the place of the sinner before and they redeemed the firstborn. But, verse 17, by qualification, the firstborn of a cow or the firstborn of a sheep or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. Why is that? Because they're holy. They're clean animals. They are to be offered. They are to be sacrificed. 
You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and shall burn their fat as a food offering and a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the flesh shall be yours, Levites. You're, you're to eat this. Or, I'm sorry, Aaronic priests, you're to eat this. As the breast that is waved and as the right thigh are yours. Whatever the sacrifice is, however it's offered, whatever parts of meat God has prescribed, they can eat, they can eat it. It's theirs to eat. Verse 19, now a word of summary. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you. And to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due, it is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. These contributions, including monetary tithes, redemption fees, the sacrificial meat offerings and grain and uh, other, thing, uh, other produce is now in a covenant of salt with God. That is, we don't understand precisely where that idea comes from, but it spoke of a perpetual covenant. Salt doesn't destroy. It just it, Maybe that's the image and the picture of it, but this is God's promise to the Levites. This is how they are to be provided. Then we find that divisional phrase, verse 20. And so we enter into a new section in verse 20. The Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. We find here God's covenantal compensation of all of the Levites. So the Aaronic priests were of the tribe of Levi, but now he backs off to the larger group of the Levites, and we find their compensation described here as well. And of course, there is no inheritance that is, they are, they are not given a large tract of land that will be their identity as Levites in the land. They're the one tribe that does not receive a land promise specifically, at least not in the sense of a large tract of land. So you're not going to benefit from that. Now think, go back to our Israelite who's raising these crops and enjoying the abundance of the land. And know that the Levites cannot really do that in the same sense. They look at this agricultural abundance and they can't really tap it like other Israelites. They have to forego entrepreneurial opportunities, ways of making money off the produce of the land. The Levites were not able to participate fully in these blessings. Now they were given land in some sense, assigned to them surrounding 48 towns. They had a little place to, to live there to, to maybe raise a few olive trees or something like that. It's something they couldn't touch the land. But this wasn't where their labor was going to be. Where the other Israelites were largely working the fields and harvesting from their grapevines and their olive trees and the like, the figs and all these things. That's not where the Levite's spending his time. That's not where he's invested. He must be invested in the work of the Lord. The Levite's long, lifelong dedication to God's ritual worship meant that they had to forego some freedoms, some privileges and opportunities that most Israelites would now take for granted and certainly enjoy. But you notice how God puts it here. You have no inheritance in the land. You're not going to be given a tract of land. But I am your portion. I am your portion. 
they were dedicated by life occupation to God's service. And that was good. That was a privilege that was as good for them as having a tract of land and raising the abundance that was there was for the other Israelites. The Levites' lifelong dedication to God's ritual worship meant that God was their portion. Now, we know God's character enough to conclude this without even reading anymore. God will not remain in anyone's debt. And He won't remain in their debt any more than He would remain in the Aaronic priest's debt. And so now with the Levites, God assigns their compensation also. Verse 21, To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. We see here again this substitutionary work as they stand between the people and the wrath of God. But it's a return for their service. They're going to do this work, and there has to be some compensation for them. In fact, we read here of the tithe. Verse 21. The Levites, I have given every tithe. Now, tithes have been described before in the Pentateuch. But here we see a 10% of one's profits is to go to the Levites. Other passages will add details, but the Israelites had probably more than one tithe that they had to give, different places, times. It gets very complicated and hard for us to even understand. But they were required to give 10% of their income to the sanctuary for its ongoing work. And this belonged to the Levites, God now says. Verse 23, But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. They shall bear their iniquity. They will guard between God and the sinful Israelites so that they would not approach God against His law and die. But there's no inheritance. No land track. Middle verse 23, And among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance for the tithe of the people of Israel which they present as a contribution to the Lord I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said to them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. This is God's plan. We come then to that third division statement. Verse 25, the Lord spoke to Moses saying. And here in this third segment, we see God's covenantal requirement of the compensated Levites. It's an interesting turn of direction here. Verse 25, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, when you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. A tithe of the tithe. This is an important addition. They're going to be receiving income to carry out the worship of the Lord and the income that they receive, they are to give a tithe to the Aaronic priests. Practically speaking, this means that their contributions would compensate. That, that is, the Israelites' compensa- contributions would compensate the Levites, but the Levites, in turn, would participate in the joy of giving themselves, designating 10% of their compensation to the Lord. Verse 27 
and your contribution shall be counted to you as though it were the grain of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the wine press. So you shall also present a contribution to the Lord from all your tithes which you receive from the people of Israel. What's he saying there? People are going to bring you They're going to bring a grain offering and sacrifice to God. You're going to offer that on the altar. But as they bring that, you are to keep what is there, what is baked, what is made for yourself. But then you too will present the same thing. Don't think of it as, well, this isn't mine. This was given to me from someone else. Someone else raised it. It is yours. Take of what they have given to you and give a tenth to me. God is not going to cut anybody out of the joy of giving. He's not going to cut anybody out of the process of upholding his worship. And so he calls them to this. Verse 28, And from it you shall give the Lord's contribution to Aaron the priest. Out of all the gifts to you, you shall present every contribution due to the Lord from each, notice this, Its best part is to be dedicated. Therefore you shall say to them, when you have offered from it the best of it, then the rest shall be counted to the Levites as produce of the threshing floor and as produce of the wine press. And you may eat it in any place. You and your households, you can take it in among the people where you're camped, you can eat it there. Though obviously it's looking forward, so you can take it to your house. For it is your reward in return for your service in the tent of meeting, and you shall bear no sin by reason of it when you have contributed the best of it. But you shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, lest you die. Remember, the Israelites are to give the best of their crops. Likewise, the Levites are to give the best of what they receive. They're required to follow all the stipulations of the ritual worship of Yahweh, including offering the best of their compensation in devotion to God. What do we make of this? How do we apply this to ourselves? We must strike the balance between pirating Numbers 18 as if it is a guide to the New Testament church, which it is not, But it's equally wrong to fail to see the continuity and preparatory purposes of this text for our life together as God's new covenant people. There are clearly indicators pointing us forward and connecting two New Testament texts. We'll only mention a few here. But let's consider, first of all, the giving of God's people. God's people supplying the work of the gospel the establishment of the church of Jesus Christ. We live, obviously, in a very different world under a different covenant. We do not offer animal sacrifices. There's no redemption of firstborn sons, no grain, wine, or olive oil offerings that we bring as we come to worship on the Lord's day. I've been in a church service in Africa where people did put produce in the offering plate. It's because that's what they had. That's where they were. That's not our world. And, that's, and they weren't doing it in order to obey the law. That's just what they had. All of these sacrifices that we see here obviously are 
All of these ritual gifts, everything is fulfilled in the last and final sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died in the place of sinners to bear our guilt and pay judgment for our sin that our sins deserve. All of that was completely fulfilled because there's no other sacrifice possible. He did it all. And the system's done. But what about the tithe? Should we carry that over to us in our Christian experience? I'd say formally, no more should we carry over the tithe than we would carry over animal sacrifices. God treats them identically. They're bound together in the principles of the Old Covenant and what the Israelites were to do. The tithe is not given to us as anything like a law, There's nothing that indicates that the tithe is a universal principle here for God's people or was intended to carry over from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. In Christ, we are not subject to such a law. However, the tithe is a standard practice that many religious people from many religions have used as a benchmark of devotion to their gods. And I don't think the idea came out of nowhere. God initiates this with His people. And so I think it would be right for us to say, if you do not give 10% of your income to the Lord's work, I doubt that the fundamental reason is a conviction that you are not under the Mosaic law. If that's your conviction, then give 11%. I think the reason is more likely... Spiritual immaturity. That's for most where it will be. Now let me hasten to say, God may not want you to give 10% of your income. That is possible. Seek the counsel of others to that end. It's possible that for now, God is pleased with you giving less than the pagans did. It is possible that for now, God is pleased with you giving less than the Israelites did under the Old Covenant. That is possible for some, and again, I would say seek counsel. But if Jesus Christ has redeemed you, if the Holy Spirit now indwells you and your citizenship is in heaven and you're not giving the standard benchmark of devotion among pagans and the requirement of Israel under the law, make certain that the reason is that you are truly unable to do so, that it is unwise for you to do so, that you have gotten into a situation where you cannot do so. Make certain of that. I say that just for your own blessing and benefit. Make certain that the reason is not that greed or indiscipline are shouldering you out of the blessing God longs for you to know in this life. It may take time... It may be a discipline you're just coming to even understand, but work to that end. I think there are principles that we find here from, Roman, uh, from Numbers 18 that make that clear. All of our wealth is God's wealth. This passage just implodes if we don't understand that. The first fruits offering, the best offering speaks to us of how God wants us to orient toward His work in this world. It's not the last fruits and the worst. It's up front with the best to start with God. 
That's an orientation that I think clearly is indicated to us here. And what we can say, too, since there's 12 tribes, if God's people obeyed Him in the tithe and obeyed Him with the redemption prices and the like, there was going to be plenty of money to do all that was necessary to carry out God's worship and work to the glory of His name in Israel. Money was not going to be a problem. Now, Obviously, people can do stupid things with money. And as we apply to us, churches can do foolish things with money. We understand all of that. But God gives His people the supply to carry out the work that He intends to do. And I think then the spirit of the New Testament Christian to advance the cause of Christ is not oriented to the law, but is something more along these lines in 2 Corinthians 9. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Here there's a decision that is to come from our own heart and orientation that allows us to join in the cause of Christ gladly and willingly and not to be bound up with a percentage. A percentage may help you as you look at what you have and what you can give, but it's not the percentage you're serving. It's the cause of Christ you're serving. And if you can give in that spirit, it changes everything. So let's consider then, secondly, the local church, just drawing into that a bit further. God's gift to Israel was priests. Christ is now the final and only high priest. There is no longer a priesthood. We don't draw that connection. But according to Ephesians 4, the risen Christ gives to His church pastor-teachers to shepherd God's flock. He gives to the church of Christ evangelists to take the message into the world in unique ways. And happy is that church that is able to compensate one or more pastors to concentrate all their efforts on leading God's flock. That's God's gift. That's His goodness. That's a blessing. Think of it in terms of this preparation. God is saying, I want this for my people. And he wants that for his people today. In a different sense, not in a priesthood, but in a similar way. Happy is that church that can so compensate some to study and teach God's word, to pray, to counsel, to to speak to the lost in unique ways, willing to take on the burden of giving account to Christ for the faithfulness and the spiritual prosperity of God's people. The Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? What do you think he's talking about? Not just, but he's talking about Numbers 18. I can't get numbers right. I got Romans and I got Leviticus in there. Numbers 18. I'm hurrying. But he's drawing from that context. Do you not know that there was a supply to the priest? Notice what he says. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Let's take that to heart. The Lord commanded that there would be those who in the spread of the gospel, in the nurture of the church of Jesus Christ, would gain their living by that gospel. That's not 
merely a benefit to them. It certainly is that, but no differently than any other member of the assembly that has a paying job. But what it is is a gift to the church to say that we will have the discipline and the insight to place resources so that some can devote their full attention to this task. I lost a slide in the process here, but let me read um, or think just also through 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, which speaks to the church of giving double honor to those who teach the word. The spirit here, I think, is of a faithful Israelite who gave the best of his first fruit offerings and of the Levites who gave the best when they tithed the tithe they were given. So we find in, uh, in Paul's writings, the connectors, not priesthood to priesthood, but people of God, old covenant to people of God, new covenant. This reality applies then to the entire ministry of the church, of course, not just to the compensation of individuals, certainly. But Eden Baptist Church, we have all we need to accomplish everything God intends for us to accomplish. It's with us. It's in our possession. It's there. It's with me. The key is faithful devotion to give liberally to his cause. For those who enter that work, be ready for a hard task. Like the priests offering those sacrifices, it wasn't an easy work. It's not going to be an easy work for us. Know as well that there will be certain things that we could do that we won't do. Certain endeavors that we might do to gain financial stability that we're not going to pursue because we're going to give ourselves wholeheartedly and devotedly to the cause of Christ. But remember as well that God is your portion. This is good. It's his blessing on the church. It's the purpose for his people. And he does what is right. But as we think of the ultimate connector here, it is to our Savior. The Israelite priests had to make sacrifices. They had to bypass some of the blessings of the other tribes that they took for granted. Think of Jesus' calling as the great high priest. He said to some with all seriousness at the top of his career, I have nowhere to place my head. He had no wife. He had no children. Set aside for his calling. He faced the persecution and the ridicule and the opposition of this world because of his calling. And ultimately, in his calling, he laid down his life. He gave up life itself. Though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might be enriched. Through his death we might be given life. Speak of a priest that gave some things up. He gave up everything. Serving as our final high priest meant that Jesus went to the cross to suffer the wrath of God in the place of sinners to stand and bear our iniquity But I said about the Aaronic priests, about the Levites, about pastors and missionaries, God never remains in our debt. 
and the priest who gave up all and sacrificed his life is now highly exalted. Humbling himself and taking on flesh the form of a servant, he has now been highly exalted as the great high priest forever and ever before whom every knee shall bow. Whatever we give to God, he blesses. Whatever we give to God, he supplies and compensates, if we can even use that word. And for us, in Christ, he pours out his gracious mercy. Father, convince us of these truths. Teach us these truths. We are pushed, we are reminded of our need to give, certainly, but far more we are reminded of the glories that belong to you and the grace that you've poured out to us in Christ. May we exalt in that gospel even now as we come to baptism. Through Jesus we pray. As we look in the New Testament, we see over and over the regular pattern of those who profess 